1: Good evening, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Futurati podcast, where we dive into how emerging technologies will impact the world and your bank account. Whether it's pondering the mysteries of life while watching a sunrise or reasoning in great detail about how a new technology will change the world, there is something unique about the human capacity to imagine the future. But where does this capacity come from? What does it mean for us? And how can we use it more effectively? Tonight's guest has just written a book exploring these themes, Byron Reese is an Austin-based entrepreneur with a quarter century of experience building and running technology companies. He is a recognized authority on AI and holds a number of technology patents. In addition, he is a futurist with a strong conviction that technology will help bring about a new golden age of humanity. He gives talks around the world about how technology is changing work, education, and culture. If you enjoy this interview, please subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends. And don't forget to check out our website, podcast.com. Byron, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, I'm so
2: glad to be here.
1: Let's hear a little bit about your background, your interests, and what brought you to working on the problems you're working on today.
2: Wow. Um, I grew up on a farm in East Texas. And I'm not terribly nostalgic about it. And uh, (laughs) I ended up... um, at uh, university, and I met my wife. Of course, she was not my wife at the time. It was not one of those sorts of things. I met the woman who would become my wife, and we married right out of college. Moved to the Bay Area to make our fortune. Uh, Decided to start a family. Moved back to Texas where we're both from. Uh, Had four kids that we homeschooled K through 12.
0: And this was after you made your fortune?
2: Well, that didn't work out. (laughs) Okay.
0: Okay. Just checking.
2: I was kind of like the Gold Rush pioneers, like ah, nice. I got a nugget or two. Like I, you know, got to bite a nugget. But yeah. <laughs> uh, in any case, I had a good time. I was there in the nineties and um, came back here, and I uh, started. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a startup guy, so I've always worked at uh, startups. I've had uh, I've had some uh, really good outcomes, and one of them turned into an IPO. And when that happened, it was, a, it was a big deal at the time. I used to get all these invitations to come speak. And good speakers uh, give the same speech over and over. And I am a bad speaker. And I would write a new speech every time I, uh, <laughs> I spoke. Like, who are these people? Why are they here? Are they having a good year? What are they worried about? What are they excited about? And I would start writing these things. And, and I, I realized like there were themes that were coming out of that about technology, its relationship to people. And uh, so I started writing books, and I write uh, one every six months. I write from 6 a.m. to 8 a.m. every morning. Wow. And uh, some of them uh, I publish and some I don't. Okay. Um,
0: Now, are are these done with uh, some quirky Smith Corona typewriter that you have in your basement, or... Do you do it longhand? Do you have a special way of writing these books? Well, Neil Stevenson
1: no, does it all with pen yeah. and paper. He wrote uh, Anathem, which is like a 1,000-page book with a ballpoint pen on
2: standard well, paper. Well, I don't, but I, <laughs> I can tell a story. This is the most famous pencil in the – well, this pencil has a cult following. It's um, it's called a Blackwing, and they brought it back into production. There are people who would only write with this. Steinbeck only used – Black, black Wings uh, to, to to Quincy Jones and we wrote music with him. My favorite thing about it is looky here the eraser. Uh, the uh, re- the eraser. You knew that. How did you know that?
1: It's just shaped unusually, and so it draws. Yes, through exactly. My they're
2: in. they're replaceable. So for a guy like me that makes a lot of mistakes, that's it. But no, I don't have anything <laughs> quirky about what I do. I okay. wake up and um, and I write for two hours. I don't have any um, any helpers or anything like that. I do all my own research and uh and i write i can I, I write for two hours a day and uh like i said and then uh, and i started that because when you have little kids that's the only time yep. there's like no interruptions yep yeah uh, the rest of the day it's like uh there's a spider in the sink and i'm <laughs> urgently needed um but yeah. for those two hours without uh much in the way of interruptions.
0: so how many published books do you have now
2: Uh, you know, I pause like it's so many, I have to count them four. (laughs) (laughs) I've, uh, I've written several more than that. Yeah. Uh, every Every year I write a whole, um, newsletter about what my family did that year. Okay. And I put a thousand photos in it. Yeah, that's a lot of oh, photos. holy cow. And, uh, yeah. and it's got usually 30,000 words. I write humor fiction. Oh. Uh, that's I do that for myself in the style of P.G. Wodehouse. Oh. And I write these books. And uh, and that's what I do. And Sorry. then I have my company. I run a company by day. And so I do that. And then my, uh, and that's my life. And then I try to travel with my kids and my wife. Uh of course, that hit a snag. Right. But, uh, and that's sort of my life. I try to go to unusual, you know, more unusual places. I want to go to places different than where I'm from. Uh, I think I may have been to North Korea as many or more times than other Americans. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, places like that. That, you know, you, they, they, what they do is they make you uh, look back at where you can, you know, where you live. Like it, it's, it highlights contrasts. Yeah,
1: yeah, no kidding. So what, that's my story. What's the uh, the company that you run by day? Tell us about that.
2: So I wondered if I could write if I could use AI to create algorithms to tell me what products I should make to sell. What what is there that people want that there's not enough of? And uh, so I've spent – I raised some money, and I spent two years uh, building uh, – it, it's truly an AI. I mean, it, like, learns, mm-hmm. and it makes uh, – I think there's, like, 52,000 products that's identified that somebody should make, and, uh, and they'll be successful. That's the H- have they been? anyway. Have they been? Uh, the, yes. So yes, As a matter of fact, yeah.
0: So did you, did you put all this in a book? That we can no. just go buy this book and become no, successful? Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I kind of want that book, though. You know, you could sell that for I'd, a lot of I'd money. I'd buy
1: that book, yeah. Yeah,
0: 50, is- 52,000 oh. things that will guarantee success. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's good. Or, or your money back, or I'm, I'm not sure how that Have you work. hooked
1: it up to, like, 3D printers or a little mini fab so it can actually make the products and then maybe have, like, outsourced marketing work so you don't even really have to run it?
2: You know, you're like three steps ahead of me. Like, didn't I? I don't know why I'm not already doing that. Well, that's I could r- be <clears throat> I could be in Tahiti right now.
1: Yeah, no kidding. Well, you'd still have to be doing this interview, so I don't know if you're, how much better your life would be. Um, <laughs> so, your most recent book is called "Stories, Dice, and Rocks That Think: How Humans Learn to See the Future and Shape It." What do stories, dice, and rocks have in common?
0: They all think. Well, no, it's
1: only the rocks that think, according to the title.
2: Well, the rocks that think—that's a metaphor uh, for computers, silicon chips. That you know, kind of a rock that we taught how to think. Uh, uh,
1: so my parents always they, told me I was a rock that thinks. So I, I yeah, exactly, it, it spoke exactly. to me. So
2: um, <laughs> what they are are three symbols for three discrete stages. Uh, I started out by asking a really simple question, which is why – actually, I'm going to take a pause there. Yep. Clean pause. Okay. It actually all started when I was at my eye doctor. And we were talking about the kind of stuff I write about, and he said, you know what I've always wondered is, like, what's the next creature that's coming up behind us that's going to be smart someday? And I was like, you know, there aren't any. Isn't that strange? It's like there's no number two. There are no Bronze Age beavers <laughs> who are just learning how to, you know, cast bronze. There's no mm-hmm. Iron Age iguanas. You know, there's. The, you know, people talk about how smart dolphins are all the time. But, and, and, you know, I don't expect them to have the Internet. But it's like, why in the world don't they have, like, a postal system or telegraphs at least? Tools. They don't have anything. You know, beavers, they build the same dams that they've been building. Like, we know this for thousands and thousands of years. And, uh, you know, no hydroelectrics, no cement. Like, why aren't there other animals coming up behind us? That, Like, what's so different about us? People like to say we're just another animal. But you look around, it, we feel very different. Mm -hmm. To the animals, we have to look like aliens, like, if they even could conceive of that. And so I started this book asking... Uh, why? What's different about us? And, and that took me back. This is really a fascinating story. Uh, so I started reading about proto-humans, like early humans. And there was this, there was this creature called Homo erectus. And erectus lived for 1.6 million years. I mean, not an erectus. As a species, they lived for 1.6 million years. And they were highly successful. They lived on three continents. And there were a lot of them for a long time. There were eighty thousand generations of them, and they had one tool they knew how to make. It was called a Shulian hand axe, and it looks kind of like a big arrowhead, uh, with kind of a in a teardrop kind of shape. A big mm-hmm. one, though, like you would use it to whatever. And I know this doesn't sound like it's going to be interesting, but just hear me out here. If I were to show you two, they're all over the place. Like, if, if you live 1.6 million years, like, you can find these things. You can buy one on eBay. Uh, you know, actual tools somebody used a million years ago for 100 bucks. Like, there are a lot of them. And if I were to show you two side by side and say these were made a million years apart, which one's older? I doubt you could tell. And that's really amazing because... Uh, what it suggests is that this was not a cultural object, it was not a technological object, it was a genetic object. It was just something they instinctively knew how to make, the way a, a bird would build the same nest or the beaver would build the same dam. Because if some erectus just copied their parents' hand axe after 80,000 generations, it would have drifted to all these different ones because they're on three continents and the cold regions would have become different than the warm ones all but they didn't they're all the same and then you look at us and it's like in three generations we went from kitty hawk to the moon right and they went 80 gener, eighty thousand generations without ever looking at that thing and saying you know this could be better and so i, I kind of said well that they were just beavers really they weren't like us. And then it's like, well, what happened to us? And our history, I think, kind of began 60, 70,000 years ago when something really big happened to us. And that's not my idea. Like a lot of people write about that. Or that goes by a lot of different names, a great leap forward or tree of knowledge uh, uh, mutation. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Harari writes about it. Yep. Jared Diamond writes about it. A lot of people write about this thing. Um, but and and the thesis is that that gave us uh language and it gave us language which it probably gave one person language and the primary purpose of language is not communication you would think that like that seems obvious but it isn't like the primary purpose of language is thought thought is what you think in language this isn't just speculation helen, helen keller keller <clears throat> Helen Keller wrote about this. She said that before her teacher came to her, she didn't even realize she was a thing that was different than the universe. Like, she didn't know anything. like She didn't have any context, any way to frame things. And she learned language. And she said, that's when I became conscious. Like, to have somebody reflect on it like that who experienced it. And I think that's what happened to us. And and here's kind of the, the big thing, is it isn't just that we got language. That really wouldn't explain it. What happened is, I think, is we learned about two things that don't exist. They're they're made up, and they're called the future and the past. They're not real things. All there is is the here and now, like this moment. Uh, But we had these concepts of future and the past. And all of a sudden, I think we could see into the future. We could imagine the future, and we could call on episodic memories of the past. We could remember specific incidents in our past, and both of those things are things animals cannot do. And boy, that's going to get me a lot of um, hey, people man. are going to push back on that. Yeah, but and I spend a lot of time in the book trying to make the case. I'm not down on animals. I'm really not. Like they may very well. Uh, I I don't doubt that they. Feel pain like we do i don't doubt they have emotions they may even be conscious but their mental state is different than ours right they can't conceive of the future in the past and all of a sudden here we were and we could all of a sudden we created stories and not to tell people it's the same thing the story was a mental construct and what it you know we would be like hmm I, uh, berries are, there are berries up on the top of that hill, and I want to climb up there and get them, but there's a cave there. Maybe if I go around the back, and no, 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 I shouldn't. Like, we would tell ourselves these stories, like scenarios. Think of them as scenarios. Mm-hmm. Only way later did we learn how to tell them, and we learned to think that way. And that is how, in an instant, we became the, the dominant creature on the planet. And because that radioactive spider hasn't bitten anybody else but us, <laughs> there is no <clears throat> such other There is no other creature, anything like us. And there may not ever be one. And that, that's, the book is told in three acts, like, you know, a play, like a story. And that's the first act. It's stories. And that is uh, kind of what got us started. Uh, We eventually started telling stories. I then talk about how the nature of the stories we tell has changed over the last fifty thousand years, and I'll pause there because I can keep. I would like to keep going, but I may just be off on a on a tangent here. You don't don't find all that interesting. Okay.
0: Interest. okay. Um, yeah. So, where um, in your mind, where does the future come from? Uh, is it stored in like fifty millimeter slides that are just re- ready to? be indexed in front of us, and then once we experience the present, where does the present go after we're done with it?
1: A platonic film theory, if you will.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so, there's a whole chapter on that. It's the first chapter <laughs> of, of the Dice section. And it's called, Why Do Things Happen the Way They Do? And that's a big thing. And it says, you know, there were, there's four old theories about why things happen the way they do. Uh, The one is, is that they're just inevitable, that A leads to B leads to C, all the way from the Big Bang to you stubbing your toe this morning is a series of events that had to happen. That's called necessity, the doctrine of necessity. Then there was another view of, like, the future, what it was and why it came to us, and that was fate, which is different. Fate means somebody wrote it for you, like somebody said, you know. This is what's going to happen to you. And then there was a third way uh, that we thought maybe the future happened. It was called synchronicity. It's a really interesting idea. And it says that everything is, in one way or the other, connected to everything else. I'm not a believer in astrology. In fact, I hate. I even have to say that out loud. I'm not a believer in astrology, but I'm, I'm fascinated by why people think it works. Like, what do they think is the mechanism? And then you think about reading Chicken and Trolls and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. you, you're like, yeah, but why do you think it works? Like, you're not an unintelligent person. Why do you believe it works? And the people that read livers of goats, they weren't scammers, Like, if you read... They had textbooks on how to do this. They had models. They were correcting people. Like, they had a method. I'm not saying whether it worked or not. I'm just saying they believed it. And if everything really is connected to everything else, then you could read sweat stains on your underarm and interpret what the (laughs) stock market's going to do tomorrow. Really? No, really. Yeah. Uh, Look, I can raise my hand in the air, and that causes the moon to move, right? Mm. Yeah. And... But the moon pulls, I mean, you know, on the oceans. It makes the oceans rise and fall. Like, how can that happen? How can how can the moon do that? Like, it doesn't touch anything. Like, like it's not an unreasonable thing. And then the, uh, the fourth thing people thought is free will. It's like human agency is what determines the future. And, and what section two of the book says is it's dice. It's randomness. And that is something that Ancient, in antiquity, they didn't have a notion of what that meant. I've got to use a visual prop, and I know we're audio only, so I'm going to describe it, but I, I do want you all to see it. And this is... Um, Gaussian distribution. A Galton bore, exactly. And uh, you may see these in the science museum. It's uh, You've got to imagine a, you've got a handful of BBs, you know, the little metal BBs, mm-hmm. and you drop them in the top of this thing, and the, they immediately hit this, um, you know, uh, uh, dowel that's sticking out. And they can do one of two things. They can bounce to the left or the right. And they do that with equal preference. And they hit another one, and they can bounce to the left and the right. And they hit another one, and they bounce to the right, Left and the right. And um, what happens when you do that, like right here, when I flip it, you see that the, the BBs form a normal curve. Right. Like a perfect normal curve. Almost curve. perfect. Right. And A bell curve. Thank you. And if I do it all day long, it's never going to change. It's always forming uh, the bell curve. And who would have guessed that? You know, if you would ask me, you flip a coin a 1,000 times, how many times is it going to come up heads? I have been trained to say, oh, about 500. But if I didn't know that, like what would you really say if you didn't know anything? I know what I would say. I would say, oh, you can't really know. Right, exactly. Maybe 200, and then 800, and then maybe exactly 500, and then maybe 150. But in truth, the odds that it's going to be less than 400 or greater than 600 are one in 16 billion. Like it's not going to happen. And, and why would that be? That's like randomness. That's like randomness. And yet there's a certainty that's in it. And what happened is, once people saw that curve, they started looking around the world and they saw that a lot of human things followed it. And the implications of that are a little uh, disturbing. If that, for, let's take a benign example first. The, the first thing that uh, the person who started applying this to human things did, you see, back in the day, they didn't really have any data. Like, where would you get data but this fellow, he found a um, a listing of the chest measurements of a Scottish regiment. So I, I think they had to order jackets for everybody. So they measured everybody's chests. And what he found out is, if you graph everybody's chest measurements, that's what it is. It's that distribution. And then he started finding out things like um, the murders in a, in a country would follow it. A murder weapons would follow it, like. Uh, All these things in in, in our life. Okay, I'll give you, here's a good example. A couple of years ago, the number of people in the United States who were electrocuted, that means you're dead, electrocuted at work was 166. The next year, it was 160. Likewise with automobiles. Like in a given year, in the U.S., 35,000 people will will die in a car accident. And the next year, it'll be 35,200. I mean, it's going to be the same number, basically. So why in the world would the same number of people die from electrocution at work? Well, it's like golden board. To to die, uh, to get electrocuted at work, your little BB has to bounce to the left, and then the left, and the left, and the left, and the left. It's that one little far corner. Because you know somebody had to leave the power on, right? And then you had to not check it. That's the second bounce to the left, and then you had to something else. And then something else. Not be wearing and gloves and, crack, and then not grounding it. right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that's why we get all this predictability in um, in this randomness. So the the future comes to us randomly but predictable, and that is like. The reason people had a hard time dealing with, like I have a hard time dealing with it. Uh, The reason people back then did is uh, their understanding of the nature of reality didn't didn't allow for that. And that, that I think is why the future happens the way it does. Do you need a dynamic and knowledgeable speaker for an event?
1: Thomas Fry and me, Trent Fowler, are both seasoned keynote speakers able to converse on a wide array of topics to audiences of all sizes and skill levels. Go to the contact page at futuratipodcast.com to book Thomas or myself today and let us apply our years of experience in public speaking to make your event a smashing success. So it's all just a normal distribution unfolding over time. No, that
2: um, uh, I'm, uh, there were five things they didn't know about reality that, you know, the chaos that. Uh, you know, that uh, you uh, tiny changes in systems can have these big impacts. There were things like that, and their lack of knowledge. Really? Okay, we have the time. I want to talk about uh, dice, the dice section. So (laughs) the dice section starts in 1650. So we come out of stories, and we have acquired the mental capability to... um, Imagine the future. And of course, we want to predict it, right? But we don't have a science for predicting it back then. Like, how can you know what the future is going to hold? You can't, uh, you know, you can't narrate the future. Aristotle said that. I think you can. But anyway, so we came out of it and we were like, you know, it'd be great if we had a way to predict the future. We can imagine it, but we can't predict it. So in 1652, these two men were writing letters, of Blaise Pascal, And Vermont, and they decided to take up this math problem. It's a math problem that for a hundred years, people had been trying to solve, and nobody could. And they knew they couldn't. And people would put out suggestions, and then other people would shoot them down. So a hundred years. Now, when I tell you this math problem, this is a math problem that a middle schooler wouldn't even get a smiley face sticker on their homework if they get this right. Like, This is like childishly simple, and it goes like this. Um, There's two people, Harry and Tom, they decide to play a game for money. And they say, let's flip a coin five times. And every time it comes up heads, Harry gets a point. And every time it comes up tails, Tom gets a point. And after five tosses, whoever's winning gets the whole pot. Now, the wrinkle is three tosses into the thing. Harry's winning two to one. And they have to stop the game. It's unclear why. Let's just assume they dropped the coin. It fell through the floorboards. It was the only coin they had. And They're like, oh, well, we got to stop the game. What is the fair way to split that pot? And some people could say, well, Harry, heads, only needed one more point. And T- Tom, tails, Tom, he needed two. So, Harry should get two parts of the pot and Tom should get one. And then somebody else would say, well, that doesn't seem right. Because um, what are they playing to a thousand? And the score was 999 to 998. It's still the same math, right? Like. Harry needs one, and the other guy needs two. Should you really give that much more of the pot? So there were all these solutions. Nobody could solve this problem because they couldn't think like that. Like, that just baffles my mind. And then what, what um, Pascal and Vermont figured out, they said, huh, there's a lot of ways to solve it. But they said, you know, there's only four ways those next two tosses could happen. It could be two heads or two tails. It could be a head, then a tail, or a tail, then a head. And in three of those four... Harry wins. One of those four, Tom wins. And therefore, that's the answer. You split the pot, three parts to Harry and one part to Tom, because it maps to the range of possible outcomes. But the idea that you could put the future out there and attach numbers to it, poof. Now, when they figured that out, that's a math problem they have been working on for 100 years. You got to cut them a little slack because, I mean, we didn't even have the equal sign back then. Like, it was early days. (laughs) They had just gotten rid of Roman numerals you know, okay. divide, uh, you know, C-X-X-V-I by V-I-I and tell me what the answer is. Like, you can't, like, so there were good reasons not, but intuitively they couldn't even solve it. So, for in 1652, Fermat and uh, Pascal, writing these letters, they solve it. And they make the math for it. And that goes out to the world. And within 10 years, their are textbooks and probability. Like, all this stuff. Like, it was this aha moment for the world. And that upon that uh we built the modern world like once we understood that the future consisted of different possibilities and you could put numbers on those possibilities and compare them and the likelihood of them so natural to us 60 chance of rain tomorrow like we don't even think about it but they could not think that way and that is the beginning like we're just one chapter in to dice uh uh-huh. So, so, so- uh huh. So actually, I'll, I'll tell one more story about this. <laughs> okay. All right. <laughs> so let me just give you another example of what they did with this. The way governments back then would raise money is they would sell annuities. So a uh, way annuity works is you walk in the government office, and they say, "You give us a thousand dollars, and we'll pay you a hundred dollars a month, uh, hundred dollars a year, for the rest of your life." Okay. Now imagine. Two people walk in, and one's 20 years old and one's 80 years old. And who should you charge more for the annuity? I mean, the young guy, because you're like, well, that guy's going to live a long time. Old guy may not even make it out the door. (laughs) But they didn't do that. They believed, which are chances of dying every year were the same regardless of your age. Now... In one sense, that's very forgivable, and in another sense, it's not. And the sense it's forgivable is, you know, they lived at a time when there were a lot of young people dying. We're not as used to that. You know, they might have said, look, mule's going to kick somebody in the head and kill them. They may be 20, they may be 40, they may be 80. You don't know. It doesn't really matter. Somebody's going to get kicked in the head by the mule. Uh, And so they just assumed everybody had the same chance of dying. Now, the reason it's not a forgivable Thing I mean, you got to understand, like they should have. I mean, we should have known this for a long time because you could spend two hours walking around a cemetery writing down the ages of everybody when they died, and you could make a mortality table. And that's what people started doing stuff like that. And that started to build what we call the modern world because it was based on you know, that alone turned death from this like capricious thing to a predictable thing, a numeric thing. And, and so that's the dissection, how it fills out with all these things. It doesn't have any numbers in it or any formulas. It's it's a dialogue about how we changed the way we understood reality, and that allowed us to en- envision probability.
1: Well, one of the interesting implications of what you're saying is that sometimes just changing the medium or the tools you're using for your cognition can, can change the range of insights that are available to you. So... As you alluded to, and this has come up in prior interviews, using Roman numerals to do things like multiplication and division is not inconceivable, but it's quite difficult to do. And yet with an Arabic numeral system, it becomes far more intuitive, and it's only a few decades before you're, you're doing more advanced operations. Do you have any speculation as to what advances in conceptual toolkits might be on the horizon? I, I'm thinking like cognitive media. I'm thinking like... Uh, programmable books. I'm thinking maybe advances in language or concepts. Do you have any speculation about that?
2: I haven't had that question before. Um, we specialize in saying, new questions. Like, What are the next sets of those kind of aha moments?
0: Yeah. Well, you said you have 52,000 of them, right? Yeah.
1: yeah before no. we started recording.
0: Well, so, you know,
1: math notation is famously kind of clunky. And there have been a number of attempts to reform it. Same for music notation, same for a variety of different things. Uh, I, I've, I've thought before maybe an advanced form of argument mapping might help make the logical structure of a claim clearer. And that, that might be just, just be an artificial intelligence problem uh, or a cognitive medium. Like Michael Nielsen does a lot of work on these sorts of things. Well, like, do it,
0: creating a periodic table of smells because uh, we don't have any any way of categorizing the things that we smell out there right now, and uh, or even a vocabulary for describing
1: it. So Sometimes just having words for those things is right. enough. Just yeah, just sort of te- yeah, uh, yeah. that's
2: really true. Because you know we have this thing called the scientific method that uh, says um, come up with a hypothesis and and then uh, test it, and then uh, if it works out. Tell other people about it so they can test it, and then if they reproduce it, we don't say it's true. We say it's true for now, and then other people build on that. But what that means is that, to your point, uh, how something smells is is as much a scientific fact as how fast it's moving, and there are. uh, I mean, those are both equally like objective. Mm -hmm. We just can't conceptualize and describe one, and and the other one we can. and so there, I think there's a lot of, uh, like, I don't know the answer to your question. Like, I don't know. That would be a whole book. Like, uh, you know, what next? Maybe that could be the next book, but you'll have to publish that. I've one. actually written the next book. Okay. <laughs> it could be the one after that,
1: the after after book.
2: <laughs> uh, then Now uh, there you go. <laughs>
1: um, and then another question I had was related to... Probability, so I, I'm a data scientist by training, so I, I mean, I, I love probabilities and distributions and all of this sort of thing, but I, I do see the tool being overused in ways that are inappropriate. So th- there's a big difference between ignorance and uh, uncertainty. So with ignorance, you've got a well-defined possibility space, and you simply don't know how the the die is going to come up, but you know that it should be you know, roughly one in six probability that you'll get any of the six possibilities, right? Whereas with uncertainty, it's not even clear what it would mean to attach numbers to things. Maybe you're a subjective Bayesian and you think that you can kind of do something like that, reason away from your priors using Bayes' rule. I don't know that that's the case, but those are very different things. So I'm with you in as much as probability was transformational for humanity, and it's an important tool, but I
2: think that it's overused sometimes. So do do you have any comments on that? I agree with that. So. What what you're alluding to for um, you know when you say there's a 50 percent chance like if I flip a coin and there's 50 percent chance it's going to come up heads like what do you mean by that? Um, what does one mean by that? And there are two completely different schools of thought. One is that uh, you know it's a subjectivist and ob- objectivist. Mm-hmm. One of them says yeah you know, what it means is that if you did it an infinity number of times over time, this is what would happen. The other way to think about it is it's a measure of our uncertainty. We don't know. And if if I were to drop the coin from a height of half an inch, holding it flat, then all of a sudden I can tell you with almost 100% certainty what's going to happen. Throw it out of an airplane at uh, 30,000 feet and you're back to 50-50. And, and so there's a lot of like philosophic underpinnings of it that uh, I dodge in the book. I mean, I, I mention them, <laughs> but I don't try to resolve them. I mean, they're like cattle farmers and sheep farmers. Like, those people don't get along. No, they do They don't have some mathematical coexist bumper stickers on their car. They hate like, each other. Yeah. They, they no, it's true. The, like, the Frequentists
1: and the Bayesians hate each other.
2: Exactly. There are rap battles on YouTube between them. Like, <laughs> um, I don't try to resolve that because for my purposes, I'm trying to talk about the journey of, of humanity from, you know, we don't we don't even know what a probability is to all the way up. I do think it's overused. I mean, Caitley, the guy that did all that stuff with the um, normal distribution, with the bell curve, even he was accused in his own time of, like, applying it to all these things that it didn't apply to. It's, uh, but, the, but the story I'm telling is a, is a little different than that. Because it, um, you know, it tries to tell how these technos- these innovations changed the way we think about the future. And that's the thing. It's like, they, um, they altered our kind of view of reality. It sounds so big and dramatic, but they really did. Like, it's really hard to get.
1: Yeah. But uh, on either side of that divide. I, I, th- I think something similar happened with Darwin's theory of evolution. When you suddenly see that there's just these relationships in deep time between organisms, it, it Totally casts even familiar facts in an entirely new light, and it's impossible to see it. it's like a Necker cube that's shifted in one direction and never goes back.
0: So one one way that I uh, talk about the future is the uh, there are there are lots of things in the future that we can predict with a high degree of probability. Um, I can predict that the building that you're in right now is still going to be standing six months from now with a high degree of probability. I can predict that the Earth's going to travel around the sun in roughly the same orbit 100 years from now with a high degree of probability. That um, we're still going to have the rising tides, that we're going to still have the seasons: summer, winter, spring, and fall 50 years from now. And um, and if I put a handful of seeds in the ground, I can predict that a certain percentage will spring to life. Uh, again with a high degree of probability Um, and we have enough stable parts in our lives that uh, we can even plan a birthday party two weeks out and 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 feel confident that we can pull it off uh, two weeks from now with a high degree of probability that we're willing to take that 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 gamble the, the things that are the hardest to predict are the things dealing with weather and and animals and people And to the degree that we can get better at predicting those, then uh, that gives us some edge over everybody else. But uh, so I've I've been trying to sort through this, uh, the whole probability thing, probably from a little bit different perspective than what you were doing.
2: You know, that was the goal. Um, People look at Newton and they're like, "Man, that dude came up with three equations that like explain a whole lot." And then they look at Maxwell and. You know, things about magnetism and things about electrical current. And and it seemed like the physical reality is reducible to very a, a very small number of very understandable uh, rules. You know, you may have heard that in 1956, some uh, computer scientists gathered at Dartmouth mm-hmm. to uh, – and they invented – Marvin Minsky was one of them um, – And they invented what we call artificial intelligence. It was named there. And they thought in a summer, one summer, they would be able to make a general intelligence. They would be able to solve that. And it's a forgivable mistake because they thought, well, you know, intelligence is probably like that too. Intelligence probably, there's just a few rules. If we just figure those out, they compound over time. And, And so I think that, uh, in, in the probability chapter, in the probability section, they really wanted those kinds of rules for sociology and psychology. The social sciences have resisted them. Mm-hmm. Evolutionary biology makes very few uh, predictions about. I mean, like they're these kind of organic, sticky, yucky things that we're all like in our day-to-day life, and they are often immune to uh, our. Our attempts to tame them um largely well for a bunch of reasons uh so you know i think that was their goal to come up with some rules that would explain behavior and 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 so forth you know the logical outcome of all of that was hello this is trent
1: fowler co-host of the futurati podcast One of the most common pieces of marketing advice I've come across is to know your audience and give them what they want. One difficulty in podcasting is that it's actually pretty hard to do this. None of the major platforms give us any way to reach out to you, our listeners, to find out what you enjoy about the Futurati podcast and what you'd like to see done differently. So we've decided to record this commercial and ask you directly to reach out to us. Head over to futuratipodcast.com, go to the contact page and drop us a line. Tell us about your favorite and least favorite episodes, what you'd like to see us cover in the future, and anything else you want us to know. We produce this show for you, and we want your advice so we can make it even better. Thank you. Well, I I, uh, I have a thesis as to why they got that so hilariously wrong, and I, I wanted to get your thoughts. Uh, AI, the AI people? The, the Dar- yeah, so I've, I've probably told that story a dozen times on the podcast, the fifty-six Dartmouth Conference, and how they thought in a summer they'd come up with it. It was a... Six a dozen scientists working for half a year ought to be able to come up with a computer that could do everything a human being could do, and in the you know ensuing uh, ninety years or whatever it is, it's uh, that that has simply not been the case. So I uh, I have a thesis as to why that is, and I just didn't know if you'd speculated about that. Very in
2: interesting. Why it is they thought that, or yep. why we have not been able to solve it? I suppose. Both. I have a strong feeling about the latter. Yeah, I well, So my feeling about the former is that uh, introspection
1: is shallow. Human introspection is shallow. And so when you look out into the world, you just perceive things. And when you walk upstairs, you just all of it just. Well, much of it happens subconsciously. And even the, the conscious bits, you don't have access to the algorithms that are driving those things uh, or, or whatever analog of an algorithm is, is uh, operative in, in the human nervous system. And so, since you're not seeing that complexity unfold, it, a lot of it feels kind of obvious. I mean, you may struggle to have an insight, but once you do have an insight, it's like, well, of course, it was all just totally obvious and clear. It just feels like the kind of thing you ought to be able to code up without too much effort. And if you don't have, you know, decades of people failing to do that as as a history lesson to learn from so i think the shallowness of human introspection is is largely what drove that it just never occurred to people that vision would be such a hard problem to solve it never occurred to people that it would be so hard to define what's an obstacle and what's not or coming up with creative ways of getting around a box or out of a trap or something like that it's it's something human children learn how to do on a pretty routine basis and that's the result of an enormous amount of complexity much of which is hidden from human introspection or even ex exospection. It's just not the kind of thing that you can get into from the inside. And so they, they, that's what they were re- relying upon to make this estimation. And they just got it horribly wrong because most of that complexity is hidden.
2: I, I would buy all of that. I mean, you're right. You can't understand vision by introspecting on it. Noam Chomsky said something along those lines. You know, he said that all these years of artificial intelligence haven't actually taught us anything about how human intelligence works. Uh, and he, he says, you know, I'm, I'm reading a quote because I wrote this today uh, for yet the next book. And he said, even to understand how the neuron of a giant squid distinguishes food from danger is a difficult problem. To try to capture the nature of human intelligence is a colossal problem way beyond the limits of contemporary science. Like, you don't hear that phrase a lot anymore. Uh, it's beyond the, the, the range of science. Um, so yeah, usually I, would, I it's, would usually it's
0: 10 years out, that's what they always say. It's, it's always ten years years. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's out.
2: conveniently <laughs> close that you should care, but far enough that nobody's going to remember you made that prediction. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, the latter problem why we still haven't been able to do it. My, I mean, I used to host this podcast called Voices in AI, I had 110, 120 guests on it, and I was really fortunate because most of the, a lot of the early practitioners of the science are, you know, still around and Mm -hmm. cogent and every single person would be on the, was willing to be on the show uh, and have a long, it's a boring podcast, man. It's just like (laughs) drier than dirt, but you know, it was a lot of like reflecting on it and I asked. Every one of them, two questions. I'll ignore the first one. What is it? But the second one is um, the the underlying assumption of artificial intelligence, of general intelligence, is that people are machines. That's the proof point that we can build it because we're machines that have general intelligence. Therefore, we can build ones. And I would ask all of my guests, you believe people are machines. And in uh, 110, 120 of those, I found four people who said no. And I'm the fifth. So I always like to say that, like, I'm in the extreme minority here, and I don't want to represent <laughs> it as anything other than that. Uh, but if, if people aren't machines, and I think there's good reasons to believe that they aren't, that have nothing to do with um, magic, as it's often accused of, then um, it's unclear that whatever magic, whatever we do, can be reproduced in a fab somewhere. So I don't think general intelligence is possible, and that's why I think they failed. Well, no, they failed for the reason you said. You know, they didn't have, but the reason we will continue to fail for a long time is because we're not machines. To to build a general intelligence. Mm -hmm.
1: So I really struggle with that because if you go down into neurons, you're, you're not talking about a transistor, but it's not such a huge leap to to imagine that metaphorically Either i'm fun-
2: gonna though interrupt you there how do you know a neuron is more complicated than a supercomputer like how do you know it's not doesn't have stuff going on down at the plank level that we just can't even are about to go do you know about the open <laughs> worm project and the nematode worm yeah. or, okay yeah. so to, for your listeners for the over a decade, so there's this little guy, this little worm. He's about as long as a hair is wide, called a nematode worm, and there are lots of them, and people love to study them because like, we know everything kind of about their physiology. They Their nervous system has 302 neurons. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it, and about two of which aren't connected to the rest. I don't know. In any case, and about 7,700 synapses. So those 302 neurons, about as many, you know, pieces of Cheerios in a bowl of breakfast cereal, uh, that's it. And so they have spent over a decade trying to model that in a computer and get something, like if, in theory, if you could put those 302 neurons in a computer and connect them the way the nematode worm is, if we understood the neuron— that would behave like a nematode. It would it would avoid light. It would seek food. It would be able to reproduce. And not only have they not been able to do it, and I mean, I'm cheering them on. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but people associated with the project say they don't even know it's possible. Like It may just be way beyond the ability of modern science. So why do you think a neuron, why, why is your intuition that a neur- neuron is even co- comparable to a transistor?
1: Well, only only in the very crude sense that it either fires or it doesn't. It's, it's an all-or-none thing. There's not a continuous spectrum it goes on. That, that is
2: that true? Uh, you don't think the neuron's analog, whereas the transistor's digital? The neuron sends very... Well, in any case, keep going. I, I'm
1: sorry. No, 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 it's okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, my understanding of the relevant neuroscience is that, yes, it either fires or it doesn't. And, and Now, I, I hasten to add that there's rather a lot more going on in the connectivity and, and what actually causes it to... Rise to the threshold that uh, generates a firing. So I mean, it's 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 not to say that it's uh, trivial or, or easy or that it, you know you could code it up in a hundred lines of Python, but th- there is this this transistor-like quality of it, either being on or off, and it's it's pretty remarkable that you can put these together in these patterns that wake up or that are able to write symphonies or write novels and poems and do all the other things that human beings do. But th- there's, there's no magic. And I, and I don't see any point at where at, at which magic would enter the system. Um, and so my, my thesis has always been that general intelligence may be centuries away, but there's just no reason to think that it's impossible to do with Silicon. What is currently done in a neuron. I mean, Uh now I I, I, I suspect we're, we're, we're on the precipice of the Roger Penrose rabbit hole and getting into orchestrated objective reduction and all of these other things. So I I don't know if you want to get into that. I
2: I would love to have that conversation. Um, And I'm not even, I'm not even a Penrose advocate. Here's what I would say, like for the benefit of the listeners, you know, this isn't like inside baseball. Here's what I would say. Um, and I'm curious if you, which, where you and I depart? So the first thing is, you know, if I were to ask you a question, like, uh, what was an early birthday you remember? Like, what was your cake? Can, can you answer that? Oh,
1: I'd have to say, I might be able to come up with one, but nothing springs to mind. What was the
2: color of your first bicycle? I believe it was blue. What was the name of your first grade teacher?
1: Was that Miss Liz? She may have been, She may oh. have come
2: later, but that's close enough. So that, that may have been third grade. We don't know how you just did that. Like mm-hmm. there is no bicycle part of your brain that stores in sequence all the bicycles you have. Right. We don't know how brains do that. You know, there was a guy that would train rats to run mazes, and then he would take the rats and take different chunks of the brain out. He could never break it. He could never yeah. get the rat not to okay. shuffle so, brain.
1: That book. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So we've got these brains we don't understand. That's fine. But then they give rise to the mind, and then you say, "Well, what's the mind and i'm I'll define the mind as like everything the brain does it doesn't seem like an organ should be able to do like <laughs> your heart isn't creative, your liver's not creative, your liver doesn't have emotions, you know, but your brain does like your brain does these things that seem incongruous to three pounds of of um I'm not making any conclusions about it. I'm just saying you kind of have to agree like the brain does these like, amazing things. We, we don't understand how it does them. Yeah, and then, and then there's reasonably good evidence that all the cognition that happens in your body isn't in your brain. It's distributed throughout your body. Right. You've got epigenetics. You've mm-hmm. got perhaps cellular memory. I mean you've got an immune system, right? Like, And that's definitely cognition that's distributed through your body. It lives on its own. So it may not even be your brain, but then then, you've got consciousness. Now, consciousness, people say we don't know what it is. We know exactly what it is. Consciousness is like the experience of being you. We don't know why it is. Correct. You, um, a thermometer can measure temperature. You can feel warmth. And whatever that difference is, we don't know. Not only do we not know, we don't even have an understanding of how matter, Mm -hmm. mere matter, because that's just like a rock can experience a world. So my thesis is, my thinking is, we have brains we don't understand that may not even be the source of our cognition. We have They give rise to minds that have all of this stuff. And they give rise to, to consciousness, which may be necessary for general intelligence. We don't know how any of that does. So for you to say, oh, but, yeah, we can make that. I don't know when, but we can make it. Uh, I just... Regard that as an unproven assertion. If if somebody's going to be accused of magical thinking, I would say it's the person who's like, oh yeah, we can make that. Oh yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah, It's like, I'm unconvinced. Are you enjoying this episode of the
1: Futurati podcast? If so, please like it. Give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and share it with your friends. By far, the best way to help us grow is to spread the word on social media, which will expose our content to more people and help us continue to bring you interviews with world-leading experts in AI, quantum computing, cryptocurrencies, and so much more. Thank you in advance. I uh, I guess I would want to parse a couple of the related issues there. So it, it's conceivable that consciousness is required for general intelligence, but I think you would need a separate argument for that because I'm, I'm not sure that it is. Uh, I'm not sure that it's not, but I'm not sure that it is. And so I think right. there's, there's a pretty important distinction to be made between building a conscious machine and building one that can reason across different domains, learn from its, its experience, mm-hmm. maintain memories arrive at new concepts. And I think that's all you would need for a general intelligence. And I I would not expect consciousness to fall out of the first algorithms that are able to accomplish those things. So when I'm talking about AGI, I don't mean something you could fall in love with. I just mean something that you could turn to a randomly chosen domain and be reasonably sure it would be able to figure out a solution to that problem, which is what you would expect of a functional human being. Not necessarily that it will compete with humans across every domain, not necessarily that it will experience the world in the same way that we do, just that it can reason in an open-ended way. And I don't know any, any evidence that that is you know, a process that relies on quantum physics or a process that necessarily has to uh, rely on consciousness. And if it's not, I don't know why an algorithm couldn't do
2: it. So it sounds like you are in agreement with me that the the, the idea that consciousness is not required for general intelligence is unproven.
1: As far as I know, yes. I don't yeah. know that anyone's ever convincingly argued that.
2: Yeah, so I don't have any basis for believing. Like, it's not unreasonable. Look, your consciousness is like the you-ness, you know, Y-O-U. Like, that's your, <laughs> right. it's you. Like, that's the thing that looks out your eyes and sees the world. Uh, ex machina, you know. I don't know. Anyway. We're, we're probably uh, trying the patience of your listeners. So that's section two, which is all about dice <laughs> and about probability. But it leads us to section three, rocks that think, which is a metaphor for computers, right? right? Like silicon chips that I don't think they think, you know, it's metaphor. Right. Um, I don't think computer languages are languages, right? Mm-hmm. So here's the big idea in, in, in that section, Um, so for a few billion years on this planet we had life dna-based life uh single-celled most of the time eventually became multi-celled for all that time life forms only had one place to write stuff down and that's their dna right no other way to like uh remember something permanently and the thing about dna is you it may take 10 million years it works you know it gets a monarch butterfly from canada to mexico and back again to the same piece of milkweed it it, it (laughs) pupated on even though it's four generations of, of monarchs the last one generation for some reason lives vastly longer than the other three put together like DNA gives us all of that, but it takes forever. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, we came along, and we had language. We thought in language. And so instead of taking 50,000 years to learn not to eat the hot pink berries, somebody said, hey, man, don't eat those berries. (laughs) It'll make you sick. And that, boom, that's it. So our genome, when we got language, our genome vastly expanded, because it was everything our DNA knew how to do, make proteins and all that, but it was everything we knew how to do. And then... Once we had writing, once we had writing, that became our genome. I postulate the existence of a superorganism called Agora, which is the sum total of the activity of humans. Mm -hmm. My next book is all about Agora. Like that's what, it says, is Agora a metaphor or a real thing? Like one of the two. Um, and, And once we had writing, then we could write all that stuff down and that became our species genome. There was a, essay that was penned uh, oh, 60, 70 years ago by a man named Leonard Reed. I Pencil. Called, thank you. I Pencil. And he said, nobody knows how to make a pencil. Right. There's nobody in the world who can, like, get the metal, the ore, and refine it and make the ferrule and all that. You know, a smartphone, like, your body has 30 different elements in it. A smartphone has 60. Like, that thing's harder to build than you are. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then you say, well, nobody can build that. So who can build that? Well, Agora can build that. Where is the DNA that tells it how to build it? Well, that's all the written world around us. And I, I'm, just, I'm just a cell in Agora's body. I'm just a bee in that beehive. Like, I'm just my little part. But the beehive can make these smartphones. And, and I think that's the world we live in. I think it's a world that's a superorganism of us because we have language and writing. And that and We have this different genome. And that stores all the information uh, that you need to make the modern world. And I will pause there but I will go further in just a moment. What were you going to say?
1: I was just going to ask you uh, how seriously you take that, w- whether or not it's a metaphor or not. And There's a longstanding tradition in economics of studying ca- catalactics, emergent orders, and the different mechanisms which propel them forward. So I didn't know if you dug into that, if you are, are stipulating this as, as sort of a Kevin, Kevin Kelly sense that technology is the seventh domain of life and it actually has its own in- inertia and logic, or if it's more just a way of like a, a – a fanciful way of describing the market order.
2: So that is the question. That is a question on which all of our futures collectively hang. I mean, that's the big one. And it can actually be one of three things. So Agora could be a a useful metaphor about the division of labor. And it would be fine if that's what it was. Like, it just helps us understand things. Or it could be a system. Like uh, like an automobile. Like, it's a real thing. It's, a, it's an actual thing. It can break. It can function. It can function better. But it's a real thing. But it's not alive. And then there's a third thing where it's actually a, a real thing. It's like a creature. And that's what my whole next book is about. And, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on the beehive. I'm going to digress there slightly. To remind me of this point, though. Um, I was a Boy Scout growing up and I used to go to Boy Scout camp every summer. And at Boy Scout camp, you take classes for merit badges. You learn, you know, you learn something and you get a merit badge for it. Mm -hmm. And they're all related to woodcraft in one way or the other, like fire building or knot tying or whatever. And I was at Boy Scout camp one time and I was a nerd. I was such a nerd. (laughs) I mean, I wore, anyway, I was such a nerd and I went to Boy Scout camp and I'm reading through the merit badges. I'm like, eh. None of this is into oh, looky here. There's a there's a nerd merit badge called bookkeeping. Like somebody made a bookkeeping merit badge. I am signing up for that. So I signed up for that. Seven other nerdy scouts did. We all showed up. We all showed up. And the guy's like, okay, first matter of business. It was a typo. Y'all are all in a beekeeping. Merit badge class. <laughs> it's an actual real thing. Yeah. And I fell in love with beekeeping. And I came home and I ordered a beehive from Sears Roebuck. And where do you think <laughs> I ordered my bees from? Sears. I got a package in the mail that buzzed. Like you could order 20,000 bees back then and put them in your beehive. And I, I raised bees. like, And I was fascinated by them. And there's a long tradition in, in, in beekeeping that the hive is alive. And if you if the beekeeper ever dies, you, somebody's got to go out there and tell the hive, like, hey, your keeper's dead. And they'll know <laughs> it. Like, that's a real thing. It's called talking to the bees. And it's been around for a long time. I don't know. Is it fanciful or ridiculous? Maybe. Uh, but I spend most of my time on the, on the beehive because the beehive is an emergent entity that is very different than bees. For instance, bees are cold-blooded creatures. They can't regulate their own body temperature, right? The beehive is warm-blooded. It's kept at uh, 97.5 degrees Fahrenheit. The bees work to keep it at that. They can cool it and and, and warm up. So is it a living thing? I think so. I think the hive is alive. Is the hive conscious? I don't know. I don't know. Look, philosophy long ago declined rule on anybody's consciousness but your own. Uh, if I were a betting man, it's a beehive conscious. I don't know. Bees are an amazing thing because they only have a million neurons. We have a hundred billion, but theirs are so dense. They're so densely packed. They may be able to do pretty amazing things with them. Well, they certainly can do that. Any case wh- where was I before I got distracted?
0: Yeah, I'm kind of convinced agora, that this right. is an episode that we're going to everybody's walking away with lots more questions and answers.
2: <laughs> we were talking so on, about no where did I where did I put the pen? We I'm were talking, almost done. We were talking about the agora. So is agora Oh yes, you asked me is agora a real thing? I'm not like, trying to choose my words. The book isn't finished. If if you really ask me, I would say yes. I believe in the Gaia hypothesis mm-hmm. um Lovely. I do think that but I'm not I don't proselytize it like we're all guessing you know we're all guessing and and that's my guess you know uh, varying degrees of confidence is as um you were saying earlier? What's the probability you would put on? <laughs> what are my priors? <laughs> to, to, misapply,
1: to misapply the... No, the no, problem. I
2: don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I... The bigger question to me is, do you hope it's real or not? What about you? Do
1: I think that Agora is a real thing? Well, No, I, no,
2: no. Do you hope it is? Would you like there to be an entity? An emergent... Ever? Consciousness. Exactly. We're all just cells in its body. We think we're living our lives the way we want to, but we're all like rushing over because Agora just cut its finger, and we're all platelets and we're rushing over there to clog it up, and we just we just don't realize that.
1: Well, if if it obviates human agency, then no, I would say I don't hope for it because I, oh, I think that's that's an important uh, philosophical precept. I think that moral culpability. Rests on it. uh, A lot of the assumptions we make about each other and and the way social systems are set up rely on it. And I think that free will is a real thing. And so, if if agora uh,
2: subtracts that element from the human experience, then I
1: think that would be a bad thing.
2: But I too, let me interrupt you. I too think free will is a real thing. Do you believe free will is a real thing because it's a convenience to support that larger view that you have to have accountability, or do you actually think it's a real thing? And if so, how is that not magic?
1: No, I do think it's real. And uh, I, I believe a, a justification for free will is probably not the thing, the sort of thing I could, you know, reel off extemporaneously like this. But uh, it, it's uh, a, a complex philosophical argument required to establish it. But, yeah, I, I think ultimately the locus of control is internal and it consists in the ability to focus your mind to 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 weigh different facts of reality and to choose among different alternatives, uh, I, I don't think that's magic. I think it's just it's a property of a of a functioning human brain, um, and. I, it's it's not just that it's a convenience for getting culpability off the ground. I mean, I think all of those things presuppose free will. And therefore, if it's not true, it, it just doesn't make sense to assign blame for anything a person does. And I don't think that anyone can claim to have earned a thing or claim to be responsible for the people that they become. Um, but since free will is true, all of those things are operative and we we can claim credit
2: for who we are. That's really interesting because – um, that was what Kate Lay and the other people who saw these normal curves everywhere said you can't hold prisoners responsible you can't hold the acu- somebody had to commit those murders three people were going to murder somebody this year <laughs> it happened to be them however however what's interesting imagine a trial today and there's some heinous fiend who killed A person in cold blood. Okay. And there, 27 people saw it and they all took photos. And there, it comes to the sentencing phase. And the defense attorney stands up and says, My client has had an awful life and reels off like just horror after horrible horror about their upbringing and all of that. And says, Based on that, can we have leniency? And, and doesn't that say, yeah, they're responsible, but they're a little less responsible because they had all this other bad stuff happen to them. Do you, do you think that's like an erosion, the chipping away of responsibility to say, are extenuating circumstances undermining the idea that people are ultimately responsible? What do you think?
1: I, I still think you're ultimately responsible. There can be extenuating circumstances and you, you can set up the thought experiment in a different way. You could just say like, okay, well, what, suppose we start injecting adrenaline or testosterone through a, an IV and just little amounts, right? And then we just kind of keep amping that up and they get angrier and angrier. Isn't there a point at which we've put so much of this in them that they are no longer responsible for their behavior in any meaningful sense? I think that is true. You can cross that line. And a person could be so hideously twisted by their upbringing that they're they're just, Effectively, an animal, maybe may, may a very. But so basically, advanced.
2: they have lost the ability of free will, and that's the basis of leniency.
1: Yes, they're, they're, but yeah. but you still have you still have to lock them away because at that point you're essentially well, talking about a, yeah. a sentient. But not bear. out
2: of not for punishment, but for um, because they're just d- too dangerous. To society, they're yeah. just too dangerous, or yeah. you know, if if they
1: were exposed to lead really substantially as a child, and they just their frontal lobe functioning has been impaired to such a degree that they really just can't control urges. Uh, in that way, but I I think that in almost any normal case, uh, if your brain is functional and intact, ultimately the way you interpret and internalize experiences is at least in part up to you. And I think that character is a thing that's built over time. It's it's the summation of a variety of different choices, and so it's not something that you just turn on or off all at once. It it there's a logic to the way that you live your life, the way you experience the world, and it's not something that you can change on a dime. But it is something that, that's malleable, at least. Prior to a certain level of corruption. Uh, and so I think that in the case of the murderer that you talked about, if their brain is functional and they weren't exposed to lead or they weren't you know, tormented or tortured as children, I'm sure you could probably find people who've been through experiences that are just as heinous, uh, Holocaust survivors or what have you, who did not then go out and murder people as a result of that. And so I, I think it, at minimum, those those other cases throw a wrench in that analysis and the request for leniency. Um, because, but in in my view, ultimately what it comes down to is, is it possible for this person to have done anything differently at at any point in their life? Is their brain the sort of organ that would allow them to have focused on the facts of reality and to have made different choices? And if it's true, if, if they could have, then... They're responsible for their choices. If their brain is not functional because of something that's happened to them, let exposure or what have you, then you're dealing with a different thing. You might still have to lock them up because they simply can't exist in civilized society. But ultimately, responsibility is a matter of whether or not your brain is a functional human brain because the ability to choose to focus your consciousness, to bring it into awareness and to Orient towards reality and its facts, and to consider long-term consequences is just something that a brain can do. A functional brain can do. If it's not functional, you're dealing with a different thing, and it's it's pretty tricky to draw that line. How much lead exposure counts is that? Like, how badly do you have to have been beaten by your uncle for that to count? Uh, th- those those are tricky kind of questions in the philosophy of law. But ultimately, it comes down to whether or not your brain functions as a human brain does. And if it does, you're responsible. If it doesn't, you're not.
2: Well, I'm not gonna with that. Like, I, I would agree with a large part. But in the very end there, you keep saying it as if it's binary. Were you responsible or were you not? Like, we have to call the ball on it. Was it enough lead or not? You know, did your uncle or not? And that's putting it back in that binary camp. It's not like they're either a person and they're fully responsible or they're not. And, you know, we have pity on them because they're not even a person anymore. Like, that, too, still feels very uh, stark. Problematic. In any case.
1: Yeah.
2: I want to, we're, we're up on time, so I would just love to talk about the final chapter, the epilogue of the book. Please. please the epilogue do. of the book. Um, in the first section of the book, I stories, I list out 20 purposes of stories. Let me read them. No, I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) I list out 20 purposes of stories, and then in the epilogue it goes something like this. I'm recalling this from memory. I'm not reading it. It says sometimes the story doesn't make sense until you get to the end. And what I there there are kind of two narratives of life. One is that, and I'm kind of curious where you come down on this because one is that we are uh, bags of chemical reactions and electricity that temporarily defy entropy and that we call that our life and we careen through space randomly and we bump into some other uh, bag of chemicals and all that and then eventually we burn out we vanish into the background noise of the universe and there was actually never any meaning to anything like we were just Another natural process like anything else and then there's another thing which I think is what people believe because you know when I said only four people of all those podcast guests believed uh, they're machine, uh, they're not machines I ask that to every speech, or not every speech, but almost every speech I give, how many of you think you're machines? I get 15%, like it's a real disconnect, and so I say there's another narrative that I think most people do believe, I believe, and that is that uh, life has meaning and that all life has meaning uh, in a cosmic sense and that your life is not uh, A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D for 78 years. That's meaningless. Like that... Right. Uh, or, or, here are all those steps. Is that a story? Is that a story? Because stories... That's the 21st one. Stories give life meaning. Stories arrange those activities in such a way that they have meaning. It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't, uh, doesn't fake it. It's not, it, it, it determines the meaning that connects them all. And that, you know, uh, Carl Sagan has this wonderful quote about how we're made of star stuff. You know, does. the earliest stars were helium and hydrogen and then fusion. Heavier elements explode and that's us. That's kind of cool. But I hope that's not what I am. Like, he he said that so aspirationally. But the other side of that is that means you are just a bag of chemicals and is careening through life. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, but there's another view. And it is that life is not Made of atoms, but of stories, and that's what I think. And then the last line of the book is, and then the big question, of course, is, well, uh, who is telling the story? <laughs> and how R- does and how credits.
0: does your story end?
2: Yeah, roll credits. <laughs> that's the thing. It's like <laughs> that's the that's the thing. That's the meaning. That, right. That's an interesting perspective.
1: I, I would have to think a little bit more about whether or not I think it's stories in particular that give life meaning. I, I would want to be really clear and careful about how I parse that idea. But I, There's several chapters
2: about that.
1: Yeah, uh, but I do agree with you that, that life has meaning and we're not just bits of uh, chemical processes going through the universe. I would actually go further and say that the, the concept of meaning presupposes an entity that can value, that can, that can care about things. And that it is, well, only...
2: but that entity can be you.
1: Oh, I think it is. I, I, oh. I yeah, I was, I was, gonna, I, yeah, no, I, yeah, right. I, I wasn't taking that the direction you worried. <clears throat> uh, no, I, I think that it's, the concept of value presupposes the concept of life, and it's only human beings that are able to value or to, to care about things long term and long range in the way that we do. And so, yes, I think that not only is life meaningful, but we are the fountainhead of meaning in the universe. Without us, it doesn't exist, or, or an alien species equivalent, or a descendant. I mean, it doesn't have to be human beings per se, but something that that is that has the faculties we have, that that's able to value in the the way that we have. I, I think that life has meaning to us. And it's the only source of meaning anyone's ever found.
2: Well, <laughs> Q- Q- <laughs> Now E-D. I'll go. QED. Mm. <laughs> roll, roll
0: credits. That's, that's a good one to end <laughs> All right. This has been a fascinating discussion here. Yeah, this is great. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I, I love the, the challenging conversation here all along.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so we did a practice run. Should we start recording now or...
2: that's really actually funny may I say two things yes please would you be willing to I've never asked another person this and I don't want to convey it like it's some big honor but would you be willing to read this book I'm working on right now and just give me candid comments on it yeah absolutely I'd be happy to do that I'll give you like uh, you know acknowledgments like oh my gosh thank you for the brilliant insights but um, you know Uh, I've been taking notes the whole time like you were talking. Wonderful stuff. Like, would you shoot me? What's your best email? Uh,
1: Yeah, let's do uh, Fowler. My last name, Fowler. F-O-W-L-E-R. T-M. M M as in Michael. The number nine at gmail.com.
2: Uh-huh. All right. And then the second thing. Oh, yes you will do all these kind of interviews, and, and you, nobody can read all the books. Are you tempted to pick mine up? Yeah. Yeah, I probably will. Is uh, that true? Really? Yeah.
1: I, well, so even just reading the questions, I, like Agora, for example, it's the Greek word for market, and you're talking, does Agora know things? And I was like, okay, well, that's a reference to Leonard Reed and Catalactics. Uh, so I, I saw Harari in it. I saw a couple of other things, that I thought.
2: Yeah, see, that's what I, what I would love. The, uh, just like a perspective of somebody with a lot of the same – Like you just like were jumping in there with all this bell curve. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Leonard Reed. It was like a game show. So, um, well, I do hope you read it. And uh, the next book is better. They always are. (laughs) You know, I have to say, I keep walking downstairs. going up to my wife and saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to finish this book because I'm contractually obligated to, but I'm never going to write another word as long as I live. <laughs> and then she just smiles at me, which I don't quite understand. Um, but that's how I feel right now, because what this book does is it starts with what is life and then talks about how cells don't have any living things in them, but we think they're alive. And then if they're alive, well, what's the basis for saying you are alive? Cause you're not a cell. I could take you a part of cell at a time and they would all be fine, but you wouldn't be there anymore. And maybe right. you never existed. And it builds all the way up to consciousness and super organisms. And then the next section is all of the, um, High concept things, mm-hmm. which is communication, information, learning, uh, energy, technology, and there's six of them. The, these are kind of the multipliers of the enablers. And then the whole back third of the book is, is Agora real? you know? And, and if you believe it, does it teach you anything about human history? Like, everybody says they don't like war, and there's war all the time. So it's like, does Agora want war? Like, do we understand... Whether Agora is real or not, like if you hypothesize Agora, is is human history more understandable and therefore more controllable? So that's the next book.
1: Well, you'll have to come back on to discuss the next book whenever it's out. Uh, Thanks so much for your time, Byron.
2: Thank you, guys. Talk to you later. This podcast is
0: a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.